Hey guys, this is David. We wanted to let you know about an exciting opportunity we don't want you to miss out on. We are hosting our annual Awaken Conference Labor Day weekend in Dallas, Texas. Join 4,000 other young adults from all over the country and world to be a part of seeing an awakening of the hope of the world, which is the church of Jesus in our generation. Go to theporch.live to get a ticket before they sell out. Hope to see you at Awaken 2022. Everybody in the room, everybody tuning in, online in particular, the rowdy crew over here. I want to welcome Ports Live locations everywhere, in particular Fort Worth, Austin, Texas, Greater Lafayette, Indianapolis, Midland, Texas, every Ports Live location. We are starting a brand new series tonight that I am so excited about, and it will be looking at the book of Ephesians. Now, let me bring you into something that happened last week in my life that will set up where I wanna go tonight. I was on vacation with my family. We went with my wife's family to the beach and where we were staying had the Cowboys training camp located there as well. And so one of the days I talked to my six-year-old son and my four-year-old daughter and I was like, the Dallas Cowboys are here. They're down the road. We can go to the training camp and go see the Dallas Cowboys. Do you guys wanna go do that? and it's all free, and they're gonna have tons of fun stuff to do. Y'all wanna go, and eventually, by telling them there will be snow cones, they're like, I'm in. So we get in the car, pack up, drive an hour, get there, and everything looks great. Get to the bleachers, and immediately in front of us, I mean like 50 feet away is Dallas Cowboys. It's amazing. There's Dak, there's Zeke, everybody. They're running two-minute drills. I mean, here's, here's a picture of how close you are. And I'm thinking, man, this is going to be a memory my kids remember for the rest of their life. Dad was there. We're there watching Dallas Cowboys out in California. It's just incredible. And I turn to my kids, and I can tell, man, they are not into it at all. They are ready to go. My six-year-old, <laughs> yeah, there's my daughter who, this is like five minutes in after she's taken my father-in-law's sunglasses, and my son's taking the other pair of sunglasses and his hat, and they're like, it's too bright, this is miserable, and I'm like, no, 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 that's Dak. See the red jersey? That's the quarterback. You're gonna need to know him. Watch this play. All right, man, he's running that route, and they're like, man, I'm so over it. When are we getting the snow cones? And I keep going, okay, hey, all right, let's watch a few more plays, and I'm trying to hype it up, and I'm realizing they don't know who this is. They're like, wait, is this our team, why are they out in California if they're from Dallas? And is this like, do they play the Aggies or uh, the Miami Heat? Do they play Miami Heat? I'm like, no, 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 that's basketball. And that's the NBA. This is the NFL. No, they don't play college teams. This is the National Football League. And I'm like, this is gonna be a memory. This is so exciting. And they were over it before it began. True story, I go to get snow cones because I'm like, I gotta do something to redeem this. Stay with grandpa. Grandpa calls me five minutes later and is like, I think they're done. Let's get the snow cones and leave. And we get the snow cones and they head off. Now, in that scenario, one of the reasons they were not able to stay engaged is they didn't know what they were looking at. They didn't know who these people were. I can try to explain, but without having a clear understanding of, hey, this is who this is, it was more difficult to stay engaged and more difficult to connect with what was in front of them. 
Now tonight, we're gonna kick off a look at the book of Ephesians, and my heart and hope in the next 45 minutes or 30 minutes is to walk through and help you better understand who's in front of you as it relates to the church in Ephesus. In other words, tonight, before we dive into the book, I want to give you the ability to understand when we talk about the letter to the Ephesians, it's like, oh, you know, the Colossians and the Galatians and the Ephesians and the Ends. But who is the church in Ephesus? And what I want to do tonight is trace the origin and the ending of the church in Ephesus to give us really a framework to understand what we're going to look at for the next eight to ten weeks as we go through and journey through this book. The church in Ephesus is one of the most remarkable stories and churches of the ancient world and in history in general. And tonight, when we look at this story in Acts chapter 18 and 19, we're going to see the beginning of the church and also how the Spirit began to give clarity on different types of faith that were present in the church of Ephesus. There was a a group that had a flawed, inaccurate faith. There was another group that had a fake faith. And then a final group that had a faith that brought freedom into their life, a genuine faith. And so this is gonna be a tracing of the beginning and the end of the Ephesian church. And here's what you need to know about Ephesian church. It was located in Ephesus. Today, that's modern-day Turkey. Ephesus was an amazing city. It was a port city. It was a climate very similar to, like, L.A. Here's a picture of today if you go to the port of Ephesus. I mean, it's, like, tropical. It's amazing. It's 75 almost year-round. That's why I say it's similar to, like, L.A. I mean, this is a place people wanted to be. Back then, because it was on a port, it was incredibly wealthy. This was a place you moved to in order to run a business, in order to have trade. You could make it in Ephesus. And so people flooded to the city. It was one of the most populated cities of the ancient world. It also was a place that had lots of worship of pagan gods and lots of spirituality. There were 50 different gods that were worshiped inside of the city of Ephesus. And perhaps the most important iconic thing about the city is located inside of the city was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. That there were kind of seven things historians go like, hey, we have no idea how this was built. It was a marvel today, and it was a marvel to everyone who lived back then. And it was called the Temple of Diana, or the Temple of Artemis, who is the goddess of fertility. This was a massive thing. I think we have another picture. There you go. This would have been a reconstruction of it back in the day, but it was 400 feet wide. It was 150 feet, I'm sorry, 450 feet long, 150 feet wide, 60 feet tall, all worshiping this pagan goddess. And the Apostle Paul is going to show up and he's going to introduce into this incredibly influential city the Christian faith. And God is going to touch that movement in that city and in particular Paul's ministry like no other location, arguably, in the entire New Testament. The Apostle Paul would spend more time in this city than any other place that he would go. He loved the church of Ephesus. And we know more about the church of Ephesus than every other church in the New Testament. We know how it began. We know how it continued because the letters of 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy are written to Timothy who was leading the church in Ephesus. The leaders of the church in Ephesus were remarkable. I mean, they had the who's who in terms of the Hall of Fame, who's gonna lead your church? Why do I say that? Well, it included the Apostle Paul. It included the Apostle John. It included Timothy. 
I mean, whatever church you've been to or been a part of, you have not been to anything like a church where, oh man, your, your church is led by Paul? Oh man, who was Paul mentored by? Jesus. Oh yeah, and then it was led by John? Who was John? Jesus. And God is gonna do something remarkable inside of the city. And the message of its origin are as relevant to us today as ever. And so we're gonna be in Acts chapter 18 and 19, and I wanna look at three aspects of this faith and answer the question or propose the question. What kind of faith do you have? What kind of faith do you have? Perhaps no question is as important as that one in evaluating, do I really have a true faith? If that's gonna impact my eternity, what kind of faith do I have? So this starts in Acts chapter 18, pick it up in verse 24. Okay. (laughs) Big fan of the number 24. (laughs) Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria came to Ephesus. So the book of Acts is the story of the early church. So it traces Paul's journey, it traces kind of after Jesus rises from the dead, the church movement. And in 18, it begins to talk about Ephesus. Apollos came to Ephesus, he was a learned man, thorough knowledge of the scriptures. He'd been instructed in the way of the Lord, that's Christianity, and he spoke with great fervor, and he taught about Jesus accurately, though he only knew of the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue. When Priscilla and Aquila, this is a married couple, they're mentioned earlier in Acts, this is like married goals, they see him, and they invite him into their home, and they explain the way of God to him more adequately. So they see this guy, lots of passion, lots of energy, eloquent speaker, and he's talking about Jesus, but he doesn't fully understand it. And so Priscilla and Aquila, this married, godly couple, they say, hey, Paulus, we're gonna bring you over for dinner, and we are going to teach you a better understanding of the gospel. And so they do. And then Apollos wants to go to Corinth, or Achaia, In verse 27, Apollos wanted to go to Achaia, and the brothers and sisters, that's the church Christians around him, encouraged him and wrote to the disciples there to welcome him. When he arrived, he was a great help to those who by grace had believed. For he vigorously refuted the Jewish opponents in public debate, proving from the scriptures that Jesus was the Messiah. While Apollos was in Corinth, so Apollos was doing that, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There, he found some disciples and he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, no, we've not even heard there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, then what baptism did you receive? They said, John's baptism. Basically, we believed in the message the John the Baptist had preached. Paul said, John's baptism was that of repentance, of hey, you need to stop sinning Turn from the way you've been living. But it wasn't a fulfilled gospel. It wasn't the full picture. He told the people to believe or to trust in the one coming after him that is in Jesus. On hearing them, on hearing this, they were baptized into the name of Jesus. In other words, they trusted in Christ and understood the gospel is not just something of, hey, stop doing that. It is receive Jesus as your Lord and your Savior. The first group that were introduced, there's two, really there's a person and then there's a group that had a flawed faith. That the Apollos had a flawed faith. We're not told exactly 
how he had not rightly understood the gospel, but he had what many people still today have. He had a flawed understanding of what the Bible actually teaches. The second group is in the same camp. It's this group that had Paul telling them, no, 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 that's not what Jesus means, and that's not what it means to even be a follower of Christ, and so he explains. Inside of this room, and listening online, to some level, all of us have a flawed faith. But when it comes to having a flawed understanding of the gospel, that has ramifications that can impact your eternity. And Paul is trying to make sure, hey, you have an accurate understanding of who is God, of what's real, and that you address any flawed faith. Inside of the room today, there's still examples of flawed faith. The candle, you guys, maybe you grew up in church, you went through confirmation, you went to a Catholic school, you've been around Christianity a long time, your grandma you know, had verses on the wall, and you, you just feel like you kind of know it, but you still think things that are flawed and not biblical. What do I mean? Things like, God is some cosmic killjoy who's up in the sky, doesn't want anyone having fun down here, and he doesn't want you to have sex or drink or smoke or do anything that's gonna be too fun because he's just in a bad mood all the time and he has one goal in life and it is to make sure nobody has too much fun. And you wouldn't put it like that, but when you think of God, that's part of what you associate with him. Or you think that he's just some genie in the sky and really, you know, I, I go to him when things are hard or when I want something. It's a flawed faith. Or that he's some sheriff, distant judge, and he cares about me because he kind of loves the whole world, but he doesn't really love me. Certainly not like me like I am. And that's a flawed faith. And the Bible calls all of us to take our lives and take the word of God and begin to go, hey, where am I believing a lie? Where am I living in a way that's not aligned with God's word? One of the gifts of having godly friends, relationships, community, older couples, is that just like Apollos, they can come along and they can go, hey, let me help you understand. It seems like you're believing this lie right now. And to address any areas of our faith that are flawed. The whole book of Ephesians is really written where the Apostle Paul is trying to help them, hey, here's what it looks like to live out your faith. Here's how you can have a better understanding of who God is. Here's what it looks like to live out your faith. And in the book, he walks through one of the clearest outlines of any book that we have, and you can break the book down into really three sections. This is the first three chapters, all about seated or set. You are seated in the heavenly places, sealed for eternity, if you're a follower of Jesus. And then four and five, chapters four and five, he talks about men walk in light of the new identity, the new you, that you are in Christ. Now you walk in a manner that's consistent with that. So sit, walk, and then chapter six, now stand firm in the faith. And it really takes us on the Christian journey that begins with understanding all those things. You're seated, and I'm gonna walk consistent with that, and I'm gonna stand firm in my faith. And what my heart, and I hope you will journey with us for the next 10 weeks, is we want to help you know how to read and study God's word for yourself. To begin to self-examine any areas in your life where you have a flawed faith, a inaccurate, unbiblical perspective on life, on yourself, on God, and to address those things, that you would begin to grow. That, as we've said before, it is possible for you to grow in age. You're gonna grow in age this year. You're getting older, it's a guarantee. You're 24, you're gonna be 25 next year. You're 27, you're gonna be 28 next year. If you're alive, I guarantee it. 
it's not a guarantee that you're going to grow in your faith. You're going to grow up in age, but not grow up spiritually. And Paul is saying, hey, addressing with God's word and growing spiritually in your faith. My six-month-old son, his name is Bear, and he recently had a milestone that he hit that, I don't know if this is early or not, I can't honestly remember with other kids, but here's a picture of him. This is Bear, he just learned how to sit. Now to you, you're like, dude, I've been sitting my whole life, but whenever you are only six months old, like this is a big deal. He's got a head 99th percentile, so for most of his life, it's like, oh, boom, and uh, now he can finally get to the spot where he's like stabilizing with those thick legs down there and he's able to prop himself up, which is apparent. It's both a milestone and also a big win because it's kind of the first time you're like, all right, I can set you down and grab, oh no, he's gonna fall. And before, if you step away for a second, he'd fall and now he can sit. Now that's a milestone when you're six months old, but if he never progresses beyond sitting and he's six years old, it's not a milestone, it's a problem. And as lovingly as I can say, some of you guys have been in church a long time. And you've been around Bible teaching. You were raised in a Christian home. And when it comes to spiritually in your faith, you have not progressed. And just like it is confusing when a six-year-old is not walking and taking steps in his faith, it is confusing when a person who's been a follower of Christ for years and years and years is not taking steps and growing in their faith. And Paul is addressing, hey, there's a flawed perspective, and the way you address that is by taking the truth from God's word. If you don't know how to do that, stay tuned, because we are going to journey through the verses of the book of Ephesians. So he addresses a flawed faith, and then in chapter 19, this happens. Paul spent the next two years, verse 10, teaching and proclaiming the gospel to the point that all of the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province, that's just the state of Asia, heard the word of the Lord. That's what I mean by Paul's ministry was supercharged. So he spends more time there than anybody else, spends two years, he's going telling everybody about the gospel to the point where the text just said, there wasn't a person in the entire state who hadn't heard the message of Jesus. That God just opens doors, gives favor, Paul's out sharing his faith, and he supernaturally begins to work through the Apostle Paul, verse 19, or verse 11 of chapter 19. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits left them. So Paul's going around, God's doing amazing work, the church is growing, he's sharing the gospel, more believers are added to the group. And the word of this guy, there's a guy named Paul, he's in town, and it's like crazy stuff is happening with him. He's seeing people come to know Jesus, and he's sharing this message about Jesus, and people's lives are being changed, and, and like it's like demons are being cast out of demon-possessed people. I mean, stuff that today, we don't even have a category for, but at that time, there was a group that had heard about Paul doing this, and they were like, man, that sounds awesome. I bet we could go do that, and we could use the same God or use the name of Jesus, so we're gonna go do that. And it leads to one of the more comical, I think, interactions, honestly, in the New Testament. Here's why I say that, or it'll make sense why I say it. Some of the Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name 
of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of Jesus, whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. So there's this group, Acts is, again, it's telling us what happened at the time, and it tells us this story. You know, Paul is going around, people are being healed, people are having demons cast out of them that were demon-possessed, and this group is like, oh man, that was amazing. Do you see what he did? He cast them out in the name of Jesus, let's try that. And they begin to go around and go to demon-possessed people and go, hey, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, come out. And they go up to a certain guy, it says this, or seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, so there was a Jewish priest who had seven sons, and they were doing this. One day, as they were going up to a possessed person and commanding them to come out, the evil spirit answered them. This is what I mean by it's like out of a Pirates of the Caribbean experience. They're commanding it, and it says that the possessed man turns to them and he says, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? And the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them, overpowered them all, and gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. You got seven guys going up saying, hey, in the name of Jesus, who Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Demon-possessed man turns and says, I know about Jesus. I've heard of this guy, Paul. I don't know who you are. And they get into a fight, seven on one. And the seven brothers fighting this one man get so beaten that they reach an all-time low in terms of loss. Like some of you guys, you were in fights, you've been in fights before, fights in high school, fights in whatever, and there's a level of, man, I lost that fight. And then there's times where it's like, man, I feel like that was kind of close, I got a couple good ones in. But when you and your six brothers get beaten so badly that you leave naked and bleeding running out of the house, you're at a level of loss that there's very few words for in terms of who won that fight. It's not a, yeah, had some good shots. And it's because they had a fake faith. Like they claimed, in the name of Paul's God, come out. Now most of us are not attempting to do something like that. But these were men who had been raised by a Jewish chief priest. They should have had some understanding or some faith. And they didn't even claim to know Jesus at all. They just claimed, hey, I know about him. I'm claiming Paul's relationship with Jesus. And they had a fake faith. The same is sadly true today, that in the same way that they were claiming the faith of somebody else to be their own, many people have that same thing happening in their life right now. Like some of you guys, you've been around Christianity. Like your grandma took you every Sunday to church. Your mom took you on Wednesday nights and you were around it and your parents have a faith. You were raised and you would say, oh man, I was raised in a Christian environment, but you've never made your faith your own. And if you were honest, which is really hard to do when it comes to examining a question like this, you have a fake faith. You've never even wondered like, hey, do I actually believe this? Do I really think that Jesus is who he says he is? Or am I just living off of the faith of other people that were around me and you know, I wanna be a good person and if I'm gonna marry somebody that I wanna marry, then you know, I should claim to be a Christian and I grew up in Dallas or I grew up in Arkansas or I grew up in wherever. And it just is kind of the thing, it's cultural Christianity. And, as lovingly as I can say, you have a fake faith. 
and that doesn't save you. And you have got one foot in the world and one foot in the party scene, and the way that Jesus commands you to date, the way that Jesus commands you to think, the way that Jesus invites you and calls you to experience life, it's something you never think about. And you got a Bible verse in your Instagram bio, but you date anything like he says to date. And could it be, and I say this as lovingly and as someone who has no vested interest other than if that's true, I want you to spend eternity with God, not eternity apart from him, that you have a fake faith. You don't actually have a moment where you've ever trusted in Jesus. You are my Lord and Savior. You died on the cross for my sin. Everything messed up I've ever done, everything messed up I ever will do, it's all been paid for. The Bible doesn't say good people go to heaven, bad people go to hell. It says forgiven people go to heaven. And here's how you know if you have forgiveness. You have trusted Jesus. You alone are the payment for my sin. There's nothing I could do that could earn a relationship with you. It's only by what you did in my place on that cross bleeding out for me, dying for everything wrong I've ever done or will do, that I can have eternal life. And you rose from the dead to prove that payment was enough. And I believe that, that you step into a relationship with God that starts from a genuine faith or trust in Jesus. And could it be that you've grown up and you know a lot about him? Man, let's be honest, you live in America you're gonna know a lot about Jesus or a lot more than you're gonna know about Buddha. But you don't actually have a relationship with him. You don't actually know him. When we were in California this past week on that beach vacation, I had to take an Uber to go meet some friends basically for lunch in another area. And I got in the Uber and I was driving and talking with the lady and She's just one of those Uber drivers that's like super chatty. And you're like, man, you clearly have, you know, just a lot on your mind. And yeah, let's talk, lady. And so we talked about a lot of different things. And uh, faith being one of them and, and other things. But at one point, we were driving through Malibu. And she begins to point out and reference all the different celebrities that lived in Malibu. And she's going like, oh, yeah, you know, there's J-Lo. Her and Ben, they live right up in that mountain. Bradley Cooper always rides his motorcycle over here. And he'll be in this area, and just Malibu had, you know, Mel Gibson, he loves that bar over there that people are hanging out at, and um, Lady Gaga is in this gated community up here, and at one point she's like, and this house we're about to pass used to be shares, but she sold it to, oh man, it's the guy who uh, married to one of the Kardashians, uh, and she had like, just hot takes. She was like, I, I just, I'm not a fan of his, I can't remember his name, and I was like, man, I wonder who she's talking about. And eventually she's like, uh, uh, he's like a musician. And I was like, Kanye? She was like, Kanye. Yeah, Kanye lives right over there. Real piece of work. <laughs> it's a dot takes. It was like, man, who hurt you? And uh, all that to say, it was such a funny experience because you're driving by and you're like, oh, that's so interesting. You know, hearing of all these people maybe you've seen on movies or you listen to their music and you have some familiarity with and you know about. But if I showed up at Kanye's house, or I knock on the door of, you know, J-Lo and Ben, and I'm like, hey guys, I'm here. Ben, just gotta say, big fan, Goodwill Hunting. I thought it was a classic, okay? You guys wanna hang? They would say, what are you doing on my property? If I went over to Kanye's and I said, hey man, you know, high school dropout, I feel like that was the zenith, honestly, of everything in their career, and just wanna hang in dialogue, he would go, who, who are you? Because I don't know them. I know about them. 
And a lot of people live their whole life. And because of the environment that they're in, they, they know about Jesus. But they don't know him. They don't have a relationship with him. They, they have a fake faith, which is not a true or saving faith. And finally, after a flawed fake, we see a freeing faith that just, God just goes to work in Ephesus. It says this, verse 17. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, that God was just at work in mighty ways, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed, who had faith in Jesus, now came and openly confessed what they had done. They have this faith that begins to take place and root in their life and it leads them to an action and that action is confession. And a number who had practiced sorcery, or your translation may say dark magic, brought their scrolls together and they burned them publicly. And when they had calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas, or the equivalent of around $10 million today. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Here's what they just said. Men and women, they began to come to faith in Jesus. And it began to do something in their life and it led to an action. The action wasn't they became perfection. It led to confession. And you have men and women. I mean, think about what the text just said. They began to bring forward, I have been involved in some dark things. I have practiced dark magic. I have been a part of things that I am ashamed of. And it says they began to confess what they had done openly with other believers. And they began to repent and say, I am leaving this behind. I'm leaving and piling together. Think about the equivalent of anything that we would put together and go, hey, this is going to be worth $10 million dollars which just shows the widespread practice of dark magic that was taking place then. Today, in our day, it would be the equivalent of prostitution. I've been involved in things I am not proud of. I have been involved in things that have hurt people deeply. And they began to bring it forward and say, I am bringing this out now that I'm in Christ. My faith is leading to action and an expression, and that expression is confession that I am going to bring this out and openly share with other people. And when they did, they experienced a freedom. That's the final thing I just want to talk about. One aspect of true faith is that it's a freeing faith. And the reason it's a freeing faith is because it leads believers, very important, to confess. Not for the sake of having shame piled on them, but for the sake of experiencing healing. The Bible says that when you and I begin to open up and say, these are the things that I struggle with today, I've been a part of in life, and I want to experience healing from them. The step we take is bringing it out in the open to other believers in our life, which is why we hit on community so much. Because if you want to experience God's healing in your life and operate from not a place of woundedness, you've got to open up with other people in your life. My son, from time to time, will play outside. He'll get different splinters in his hands, and he's so terrified that I'll have to come in and take tweezers, and I have to get it out. And he's like, no, I'm fine. I'll just live with it forever. It'll be great. And I, as his dad, know if I don't get that out, it's going to stay 
painful and infected, the only way it can heal is you've got to get it out. And the same is true in Christian faith, whether that's a current struggle with pornography. Maybe it's a same-sex relationship no one knows about. Maybe it's something you did in high school you never told anybody about. Maybe it's just a thought battle that just plagues you around body image, anxiety. What do you do with that? The Bible says that we bring that through confession to other believers in your life and we share. And this is really important because here's what you need to know. Maybe you're new to Christianity. Maybe just you've gotten back in your faith and it's, you're trying to follow Jesus. And sometimes, sadly, inside of the church environment, we communicate things unintentionally like this. Here's Bob. Bob last week was strung out on heroin. He was down, you know, doing everything wrong inside of life in the world. And then he trusted Jesus. And now Bob is wearing a suit. And he's pinned up and he's never struggled since. And that happens. It's just not the case most of the time. And the danger of a message like that is like, oh man, if I come to Jesus, then everything overnight's always gonna be fixed and I won't struggle like this anymore, which is just not the truth. And it tells somebody who is in the room, who's going, man, I've come to Jesus and I became a believer and I thought uh, the message was, I'm not gonna struggle with these things anymore. All the abuse from my past, that's not gonna own me anymore. Like I'm gonna be free. And the truth is, one day you will in eternity. But in this life, when those thoughts and those moments happen, because just as a believer, Kennedy, every broken person inside of this room, myself very much included, still has things and areas that I look at my life and I'm like, God, when are you going to take ground in this? How many more years and how much more age and how much more life am I gonna have to do where I still struggle with this? I'm at the beach last week and I'm with my kids and I'm with my wife and you know what still goes through my mind? Man, there's a girl who walks by in a bikini and I want to look and I know I shouldn't, but I still want to and I hope that somebody else walks by and what do I do with those moments? What do you do when you love Jesus and you still find yourself struggling with things that plague you? Ready? You confess it and you bring it out into the light and you begin to experience healing. There's no perfect formula that if you do this, then X, Y, Z, there is a promise from God. Hey, I began this good work and I will finish it. And there may be a differing degrees to which that takes its place out inside of your life than it does another person, that you may struggle for a longer amount of time or temptation maybe looks different inside of your life. So what do you do in those moments? Ready? You confess it to experience healing. And when that happens, you experience and step towards freedom. And you do this at a thought level of here's the, just the lies that I'm believing. So much of the anxiety in the room is connected to the fact that you won't open up with anyone. And you feel like, man, I'm all alone. No one else struggles with this. And you bought a lie. And an enemy that wants you to stay there and you're the only one who struggles. And if you told them, you know what they would think about you? And it's just a lie. And the church in Ephesus did the astonishing move of saying, this is what I have been a part of. I have been a part of dark things I am ashamed of and I am bringing it into the light and I am burning the bridges. They burned the scrolls accounting to 50,000 drachmas or $10 million. They weren't even like, hey, let's sell this, we'll give it to the church. I am burning every opportunity and I'm walking away, which is called repenting. 
that looks like I'm pouring the alcohol out. I am deleting their phone number. I am getting not a smartphone anymore. I'm putting covenant eyes on my phone. I am making steps because this is not something I want to be a part of my story. And the good news in Christ is you can confess freely and open up freely because here's what the truth is. That doesn't define you. Jesus does. That's why we have the freedom and the opportunity and ability to confess. Because, hey, despite the fact that I've done this and I want to do this and I'm doing this, it doesn't define me because Christ defines me. And any amount of shame and guilt, that is not from the Lord. Conviction comes from the Spirit, but that's going to lead me that I can share this. And I am broken. And that's why I need a Savior. Romans chapter 8 says that Jesus, or Paul is talking and he says, man, do you know If you are in Christ, there is no accusation, no thing that anybody can bring against you. It has been finished, and nothing will define you if you are in Jesus, because he does. It says this, Romans chapter 8, verse 31, I'm about to be done. What shall I say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He didn't spare his own son. He gave him up for us all. How will he not also graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies Who then is the one who condemns? No one for those who are in Christ. Jesus who died, Christ Jesus who died more than that, who was raised to life is at the right hand of God interceding for us. So we bring it knowing this doesn't define me. And my faith leads to the expression of confession. And when that happens, I experience healing. It's why Paul would write the very first words of the book of Ephesians and say, Paul, an apostle writing to you, saints. You're not sorcerers, you're not sex addicts, you are not perfect, you are saints in Christ. And they came and they shared and they experienced healing. And one of the ways you know, man, I have a real faith, a freeing faith, I open up and I can share. That doesn't define me. And the thing that you're afraid of right now, the guilt and shame that you carry and you think you're gonna carry it till you're dead, is tragic because you think if others knew, man, that's how they're gonna see you. And the truth is, no matter how anyone sees you, that doesn't define you. Because in Christ, he defines you. It's interesting. We know, like I said, more about the church in Ephesus than any other church. We know the beginning. We know the middle. And we know something that happened at the end. 30 years after the Apostle Paul would write to the Ephesian church, the Apostle John would once again, under the instruction of Jesus, write a letter to the church in Ephesus. Revelation chapter two, the last book of the Bible, the apostle John is instructed by Jesus, hey, there's seven churches, I want you to write to these seven churches. The first one, the church of Ephesus. And here's what Jesus says to write. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, I know your deeds your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked people. You have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not, and you have found them false. He just said, hey, I know how hard you work. I know how faithful you are. I know that you 
when it comes to truth, you don't fall for what other people may fall for. You are sound biblically. You know the Bible and you stand on it. You have persevered and endured hardship or persecution for my name and have not grown weary. Now we stop there, that's a real positive encouragement. Man, you guys are biblically sound. You know the word. You know it to the point where when someone says something that's not accurate, you don't, uh, and not just that, everybody's getting persecuted, people are falling away, and you're going, I'm gonna stand firm. And then it takes a shift. Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken the love that you had at first. Consider how far you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come and I will remove your lampstand from its place. Translation, if you don't do the things that you did at first, you're no longer gonna be the people of God because you're not gonna be the church. What is he saying? The only record of the things they did at first that's contained in the Bible is what we just read in Acts chapter 18. Where they came together and they opened up and they shared honestly and they confessed. And Jesus just said, hey man, you guys, you're this church and you know the Bible. And you, when everyone else may turn away because it costs them, man, you stand firm. But you're not doing and living openly and honestly like you used to. You've drifted from your first love that said, I don't care what anyone thinks. I'm going to open up and be honest because I want to experience freedom and I want to honor God. You guys have begun to play the game. And you show up, Church of Ephesus, and you look pretty and you know the Bible and you know the things that are right and you're going to stand firm and, you know, culture's going to hell in a handbasket, but not us. And it's pretend. You're not being open. You're not being honest. You're just playing church. And he says, when that happens, you're not the church because the church is meant to be a place where broken people can gather and come together and say, it's okay to not be okay. And I need you to come encourage me and say, but we're not going to stay that way. And we're going to lovingly walk alongside of each other. Whatever you're walking through, whatever brokenness that you're afraid of, the best encouragement I would give you tonight, you can experience a step towards freedom. Am I saying you won't be tempted tomorrow? No. I'm saying you can step towards freedom or you can keep playing the game and fall into the same trap that who knows how it happened in Ephesus. Again, keep going. I know the Bible and community, just not open. I'm not honest. But that doesn't have to be your story. And for the rest of your life, you and I have the decision, am I gonna live honestly and openly and experience a faith that brings freedom let me pray. Father, you know the thousands of stories, the thousands of hurts, disappointments, heartaches, frustrations, things that have happened in our lives that have led us to make decisions where we've acted in ways that we have regret over or we are currently still living inside of it. And you know the shame and the fear. And I pray that you would win tonight. For anyone who knows, man, I just need to, oh, I need to text someone in my community. I don't have a community. I just need somebody that can help me. 
that your spirit would flood the hearts of your people right now and lead to an outbreak of confession, an outbreak of the expression of our faith that that is. And we'd experience healing. Father, I pray for anyone who has arrived at the reality, man, my faith is, my faith is not real, it's fake. They wouldn't feel condemnation. They would feel the loving whisper of their heavenly father saying, I died for you. My son was crucified for you. And they would cross over and be introduced through Jesus to the new them, the new life. Father, thank you for the story of Ephesus. Would you protect us from playing the game and pretending? And would we be your people? We worship you now in song. Amen.